And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Small Beers Matters here on Triple H 100.1 FM and across the community radio network. My name is Alexi Boyd. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all had a lovely break, which is hilarious because I know that you're all listening and you're small business owners, so you didn't have a break at all. If anything, you were catching up on your admin or maybe... I don't know, just doing stuff, maybe business planning. I was just speaking to my guests before the break and uh, they said, yes, now's a good time to sit down and actually sort out what we're doing for the rest of the year. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you all had a little bit of a break and actually stopped for a while and rested and took time out with your families. I hope you are all safe. Um, Those of you who are listening with small businesses who are struggling, I I understand there are things that are going to happen to make everything fine again, but in the meantime, we'll just pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off like we have for so many millennia as small businesses. Now, I'm really excited about today's program because I've got a couple of true entrepreneurs. When I think back to when we were at uni, anyone who was an entrepreneur was basically someone who was unemployed. But we have some true uh, inspiring story to to share with you today. And it's all about social enterprise. Now, We're welcoming a pair of inspiring young female entrepreneurs who, after growing up locally on a semi-rural part of Greater Sydney, um, took that life experience and founded a company called Aggie Global. It's a social enterprise connecting small farmers to big markets in developing countries via an e-commerce platform. Completely new, completely different. I'm really excited to hear about their journey today. Now, social enterprise, when we think about it, isn't necessarily a new concept in small business. We incorporate it a lot in the way that we operate. We support local community. uh, We do advertising in the local paper. We think socially when we're existing in our, uh, I guess, local enterprise as small businesses. But it has been wholeheartedly embraced as a way to find a balance between income and inspiration by the millennial generation. They begin their entrepreneurial journeys. They are hungry to find meaning. It's not just about about the money. It's actually a lot more about finding purpose in what it is that they're doing and in what they're achieving and the way that they give back, not just locally, but to a global community in which they operate. Millennials don't think of running a business as just being local. They think of it as global. Everyone is a potential client. Everyone can potentially see what it is that they're doing and everyone can support them as well. But how do you make sure what you're doing is financially viable and not just going to burn out your goodwill and everything that you've achieved? Lisa and Zoe Paisley are here today to share with us this story of building a business from the ground and the heart up. Girls, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Now, I'm really excited about today because um, I came across your business enterprise and what it is that you're doing through a mutual uh, social kind of small business entrepreneur that we all know and love. And that would be Jono. Hi, Jono. I know you're listening at the moment, but <laughs> let's talk a little bit about um, how it all got started. What was the inspiration? So, um, Zoe, let me ask you first. Tell me about the Agritech business um, and where did the idea first come from? Hi. So, uh, Aggie Global is a social business and it's all about connecting small farmers to big markets. And we're doing that via e-commerce platform. And we literally just showcase uh, the local food that is available in developing countries. Uh, the idea came from... We always had a passion for agriculture. We had a lot of exposure from it, from being quite young with horses and chickens in the backyard. And when it came to studying a degree, we really wanted something that had impact and everyone needs to eat and agriculture is what allows people to eat. So that was kind of the first kind of step towards building something with impact. And mm. so then we studied agriculture at Sydney University. And through that, we did heaps of placements throughout Australia. So out at Wagga and out in the country. 
And then we also did it around the world. So we went to Laos near Vietnam in Cambodia and we also went to Fiji. And we spent about three years in Fiji just working there and talking with farmers and we really saw what was going on there and we saw a lot of opportunity over there to be helping the farmers and really kind of building up their economy through agriculture. And so that's how we kind of found our way into agricultural development. And from that, we, like in Fiji, they're importing $30 million worth of food um, for the tourism industry alone. And that's just to feed the tourists. And when you look at the Fijian economy, the majority of farmers are living in poverty. So there's this massive disconnect between the tourism industry having to feed all the guests and everyone and the local economy. And so we were just kind of blown away by the fact that there was so much money being spent and it wasn't getting to the people that needed it. That's crazy. Yeah. Mm. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yep. Because, I mean, to me, when I think of Fiji, I think of it actually something quite lush and I guess Mm -hmm. um, they would be very good after all those generations of actually having a successful agriculture industry. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. And so that's what we were seeing. And we're like, there's such a massive disconnect. And that's kind of where Aggie Global was born, was just creating that awareness about the local food and really connecting those two disconnects disconnected industries. And also the fact that people are obsessed with food when they travel, yes. aren't they? They love it. And, and and I love the way that you guys have found this connection between what we love to do. Like people don't just go somewhere and bring, you know, a backpack full of food and eat mm-hmm. two minute noodles. You go out there to actually experience the local culture and the local food. Uh, and you guys have somehow made a connection to be able to support the local community in doing so. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you start that conversation with that those big hotels and those big businesses who continually import um, everything. Lisa? Yeah. Um, well, those businesses are actually really open-minded with the whole thing, whole thing because they are uh, hiring a lot of local staff members, so they do see those issues. Like, all the local employees are coming from villages down the road where their families are farming or fishing and those kind of things, but they don't have the mechanisms to really put it into place. Mm-hmm. So when we started researching the whole topic area some more, we came across all the little issues that were causing the disconnect. So communication, the awareness, um, pricing, and the unreliability of the farmers is what the hotels were seeing, but it wasn't necessarily true. It was because the farmers weren't guaranteed that that produce was going to be purchased. Um, so really looking deeper, we could f- see what issues the hotels were facing and then we could work out a service that could meet those issues. So how do you... I mean, because I would assume that these big businesses like the Hilton, and I'm just thinking mm. of big names, but they would basically be having um, agreements that are already in place and they're going to say, no, we've already got agreements with our suppliers. It's a three-year contract. We can't break that. We're going to lose tonnes of money if we break that contract. So that's not an option for us. Is that one of the brick walls that you come up against when you're talking to this these bigger guys? Yeah, of course it is. Um, so they have ag- agreements with importers and middlemans and people like that. So it's about... Like, okay, cool. If you want to stay with those suppliers, that's all well and good. We Mm -hmm. can try and integrate them in, but our focus is local produce. So we will only have local farmers or middlemen who are are sourcing 100% local food. And so your business model is to be the middleman, if you will, between between those farmers and and those larger corporations so that to encourage them to, 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 I guess, purchase locally. Yeah. So middlemen and also a little bit of education because as Zoe was saying before, they aren't aware what produce is available and what. Well, that's crazy. I mean, all yeah. they've got to do is take five-minute walk down to the markets yeah, and exactly. see what's, what the local produce is. That's nuts. Or just 
you know, Google it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, the information is not always on Google, so that's ah. one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. Um, and so if they go to the mar- local market, they're like, okay, cool, this is available today, but what's available in three months? Yeah, and yeah. I guess that's that's the difficulty when you're running sort of you're feeding tens of thousands mm-hmm. of people. Then you've got to be planning well in advance oh, what yes. the meals are, and you ne- don't necessarily want know what the crops are. But like you said, that's part of the educational, mm. educational side of things. Um, Zoe, tell me about when you what was it that drew you to specifically to like to the market of Fiji? What was it mm-hmm. that made it so? I mean, I've been there. Anybody who's been there knows how wonderful it is. But what was it that drew you um, as an opportunity to really build that relationship between the farmers and the and the um, the users of the produce yeah so initially we went there as part of a placement and Fiji caught our eye mainly because we hadn't really considered it as a place to go I know that sounds a bit bad uh, but it was kind of that unusual thing and we didn't know a lot about Fiji and then when we got there we literally just fell in love with it Uh, the first time we went we stayed on this farm and it was just this beautiful view we're up in Singatoga Valley so it's just this view of this valley and we had the river nearby and it's just beautiful um and then just the people there are so lovely mm. and they're all just community orientated and they just welcome you in. You can just wander down the road, talk with a farmer and they'll invite you in for tea or kava, uh, depending mm-hmm. on what they're drinking at the time. Uh, and they're all just so welcoming. And I think that was what really stood out for us. And we really wanted to give back because they gave so much, even though they didn't have much. Um, and that was kind of our driver and what that was our sticking point. And so from there... It's also with farmers, I guess, this is a mild tangent, but with farmers, they work so hard to be providing for others, but they don't get the recognition that they may deserve. Mm. And so there's that side to agriculture that we're really trying to bring up as well, just awareness about what's actually going on. Um, But it's also, it's quite obvious in Fiji as well, just based on their community and things like that. So yeah, pretty much just fell in love with the place and the people and we wanted to give back to them. So Lisa, when you're setting up a a social enterprise, um, what are the key stakeholders that you need to be aware of I guess taking your experience in the global community, what what who do you need to be making friends with? Who do you need to be <laughs> connecting with? Yeah, um, there's so many different groups you can be connecting with. I think for us in Fiji, one of the biggest ones was obviously the government and reaching out to the Ministry of Agriculture just to see what programs they had and where we fit in. Could we do something different? Could we Were they quite open them? to that or did they f- sort of say, oh, you know, it's Australia Big Brother, another mm. organisation coming in? What was the feeling of the sentiment when you were trying to make those connections? Uh, it kind of depended on what stage of the conversation you were at. Like at the beginning, they were all like, yeah, this is amazing. Like, thanks so much for coming in here and helping us out and things like that. Um, and they kind of saw us as more as like a research body or like an aid program or something like that. So as you explained further down the conversation that, oh, we're a business, we will be generating some kind of money from this. Um, they were kind of, they not so much stepped back, but they were like, here, have free range, pretty much. They, they left us alone a bit more, which is fine by us. It made it a little bit easier. I guess, to work there. So you've got to be making connections, obviously, with government at different mm-hmm. levels. And then, obviously, how do you... Uh, you had that, that relationship with farmers that you'd done the, 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 the um, interns with. Yeah. How do you build that relationship with more and more of, the, of that, I guess, key stakeholder mm-hmm. group? Yeah, the mm-hmm. community. Um, there's a hierarchy over there. So you have to go to, like, the village head. You have to be accepted into that village. You do a carver ceremony and 
then you're welcome and you can come back and forth as many times as you please. Mm. Um, and then in Singatoka Valley, it's really convenient because all the farmers are on the main road. So you can drive down and just go door knocking and say, hi, this is what we're doing. If you're interested, contact us and things, um, which always goes back to the community. They're so welcoming and it's really easy to be accepted into it, we find, which is good. And, and did you think, Zoe, when you first established that relationship, was that almost the benchmark? Do you sort of go in, create, um, I guess, positive relationship with the person you initially started with mm-hmm. and then use that as, a, as a, an example to the other farmers? Because um, to be brutally honest, we're not speaking about people who have done university degrees in agriculture. Yep. These are people who have for generations have had this information passed down. So how do you show them that what you're doing is legitimate um, and that you're trying to explain to them what it is that, you know, to try and help them? Yeah. Uh, it is a very demonstrative society. I hope I said that right. Um, <laughs> but essentially they need to see the impact and see what is going on and see why they should do it. Uh, so to begin with, initially Aggie Global was looking at a more education side um, and educating farmers on how to grow their food properly and at a higher quality. Uh, we later realised that it wasn't about the, how they were growing it because farmers aren't stupid. Um, <laughs> they, they know what they're doing in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. They know the land, they know what they're doing. And so that's why we pivoted to the market access kind of side with the tourism. But when we were looking at the education side, we were talk, we held a few workshops and we were talking with farmers and there was this one key standout of a farmer and he came to one of our workshops and he went back and he applied pretty much everything that we taught him. And we're like, that's amazing. And so about six months later, we revisited him and we found out that he had actually in, uh, increased his income by six times the national average. Whoa. Yeah, so... Normally, they're earning about 200 Fijian dollars, which is about $150 AUD every week. And he was earning 1,000 Fijian dollars. Um, so that was a massive thing. And for us, we're like, okay, cool. What we are doing is right. We can make this work. And so we really used him as a case study to show others and be like, hey, this is what we can be doing for you. And once we increase your produce and what you're actually producing, uh, we can then sell it to the market and things like that. So yeah, really having those key kind of examples of the farmers and also the key advocates. So before, when we're talking about government things, we have certain people in different bodies and organisations within the community and they really kind of advocate for us and they help us find the people that we can work with. And building those relationships, like yep. you said, is so important. Sometimes that can be government, but like you, yeah. like you said, I thought it was interesting, um, Lisa, when you said that they once they discovered that you were commercial in nature, essentially, uh, that they said, "Oh well, you're off. You're off on your own. You can do whatever you like. We're not going to impede your, your progress, but we're not going to assist you as much as if you were a yeah. an aid project or something like that." Do you think that would be fairly typical, irrespective of which country might be your, people might be looking at doing social enterprise with? with that, do you think that would be the attitude, or is that purely a South um, a South Pacific South attitude? Pacific um, I think it would be fairly typical i think because social enterprise is still a fairly new concept government bodies haven't really adapted their policies and their programs to suit their needs like there's a lot of different um grant programs out there but that's more for any small business it's not specific to social enterprises um so i would say it's fairly stereotypical i guess Mm. Mm. and is that something you'd like to see uh governments do more of which is supporting social enterprise commercial interests to help build boost that part of the economy yeah i'd say yes i think for us social enterprise is really this hybrid of making that positive social impact but also having that sustaining well lasting impact because you're getting that profit and the profit is what fuels your impact uh and so 
I think if there was more kind of investment into that, you could have the lasting and long-term impact that I think everyone wants to see, especially when facing some of these bigger challenges around the world. Uh, let's talk about the whole question of millennials. Why is it that your generation over and above others is more interested in making a social impact than making, say, a, a profit? Um, Zoe. Um, Lisa. Lisa, sorry. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen at one stage. That's fine. Um, I think it's just because we've seen a lot of previous actions by not necessarily government, but society as a whole and how that's impacted um, isolated communities and different um, minorities, I suppose. Is it because the information is so accessible? Yeah. Because you can yeah. see it firsthand through yeah, the internet, sure. you know, what it is. You can go, well, how is this impacting this community? And bang, there's a, a couple of available news stories straight away you can see. Yeah, exactly. So there's a much bigger awareness about some of the negative things. And then the community millennials are just getting frustrated. They're like, I don't want to be boxed in this. I want to change this. I want a better world for ourselves and future generations as well. So I think because it's so in your face, like with the bushfires and climate change and all this kind of stuff, it's like, no, I'm sick of this. I want change now. So mm. people are finding different ways to solve these problems. And is the educational sector stepping up for, to that? Is, are there, is there, did you find when you were interested in studying um, a social enterprise aspect of your degree that it was available to you or did you have to sort of search it out, seek it out and ask it? Um, I think... It wasn't really available for us. Yeah. I think we found the social enterprise stuff through our placements. Um, during university, if we... like, It was very much funneling us into a research site, mm -hmm. which is fair enough because we were studying science and agriculture. So but that's maybe, what they're familiar with, isn't it? Yeah, you know, they, they exactly. Get, they, they've got the whole research mechanism thing down pat. We know how to do this. We know how to put people into placements. Yeah. Do you think that more adaptability has to happen in the education sector for the sake of small business? I think yes. I think um, especially small business and kind of the way we're all heading in the world, I think we really need interdisciplinary kind of approaches. So we need different aspects. Um, with Aggie Global, for example, we're using technology. We don't have a tech background. Our dads are techie, but we don't have that hardcore tech background. And so we need a different discipline and we need that different kind of expertise to really be building us up and I think that's going to be a lot of the future stuff like tech is just growing so rapidly that we do need the different um, opinions and perspectives I guess. I love the inter interdisciplinary yep. approach it's, it's exactly mm. right that's how I guess small business has to operate and we need to see yep. education step up in that way. We're going to take a quick break here on Small Biz Matters and when we come back I want to talk to you about the process of beginning um, this sort of social enterprise business and, and why the whole social enterprise sector is growing. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back with Small Biz Matters after this. Today we're talking all about social enterprise. We're talking uh, and learning from the next generation um, of entrepreneurs who are setting up social enterprise-based businesses. Now, what is that, you might ask? Just before the break, we were talking about um, the way to establish a business. What's the inspiration that Aggie Tech, my guests today, have drawn from and why is it that they're heading in this sort of direction when it comes to setting up a business? Um, why are they drawn to social enterprise over and above profitability and um, what is it that, that inspires them to do that? I want to talk to you guys a little bit more about um, where the practical nature of, of how we get set up. Now, just before the break, um, Zoe, we were talking about the, the fact that you've got to connect with lots of different 
key stakeholder groups. That's really important, established relationships. I mean, everybody in small business knows that. Um, what, what would you say was one of the main mistakes you made at the beginning when setting it up? What, what was maybe one of the assumptions that you'd made that really you'd like other people to learn from? Um, we've made a few mistakes. <laughs> you always do. Um, I think in startup, one of the biggest kind of sayings that we always hear is um, fail hard and fast and always learn from your mistakes. So I think some of the mistakes we made is being kind of married to the solution. Yeah. We had initially Aggie Global will starting off as this education piece, which I mentioned earlier. And we had in our heads this big idea of, oh, we're going to use artificial intelligence. It's going to be all this really cool stuff. I'm going to build this app and it's going to do all this stuff. Um, but it's just too massive. And so then when we started talking with the farmers, because we're working in developing countries, they weren't as literate with tech. They have tech, but they're not as literate. Um, and so when we were kind of trying to validate this idea, they were kind of like, yeah, it's cool. Um, but they didn't really understand the kind of everything that was going on in the background. And then it came down to it and we invested all this time and a bit of money into it and it was about a year down the track and we got a release for this app. Um, and the re first release was pretty... It wasn't great. It was about collecting data because if we are going to use artificial intelligence, we needed all this bulk data. Um, but at the end of the day, it didn't deliver anything. It wasn't valuable. And so after a year, we had to call it quits and let go of some of these great techies that we had on board. Wow. Um, that must have been really hard. Yeah, yes. it was really hard. It's why it also took us a while to make the decision because like, I don't want to let go of this. A, it was kind of the uh, big idea that we are kind of trying to make, like um, complete, I guess, and also the people that were involved. We got quite attached to them. Um, yeah, so we were quite married to the solution, but at the end of the day, it wasn't making the impact that we wanted and it just wasn't really valuable. Mm. Um, so really listening to your consumers and understanding who your customers are and working with that and not being married to the idea and having this picture and not forcing a solution. Well, that actually raises a really good question because when you're in social enterprise, who are your clients? Because yeah. it's not a really straightforward relationship. So at what stage of the business development do you establish who your client mm -hmm. base is? Yeah, so that's been another steep learning curve over the last 12 months for Zoe and I is we went through this accelerator and that was heavy business. Like it wasn't social enterprise per se and the impact side, it was just the business side. And so we really had to flip our focus from the farmers and the community members to our customers who would be paying us, which were the tourism sector and the hotels. Right. And so that's flipped our messaging so much. It's flipped our focus a little bit. Um, and we're still making the same impact, but it's like we still need that profit and the revenue coming in. So for now, we need to focus on that so we can support the impact. Of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. so many times you hear about small businesses having this dream and having to do this really crappy job to begin with just to mm -hmm. get everything up and running. Not to say that having that relationship, mm. it's just more commercial than you anticipated. Is that is that probably one of the messages that you would give to people who are just wanting to go something into purely not-for-profit, I want to do awesome things, yeah. but mm. I'm not going to make any money? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you really need to put on that commercial hat and be like, okay, how is this how am I going to break even? How am I going to make profit? Where are the numbers coming from? How is this going to work now and in the mm. long term as mm. well? Yeah. Now, uh, where where is the, in the world is uh, who's doing this best in terms of social enterprise? Where does Australia's small business and the education side of things sit compared with um, the rest of the world? Uh, I think 
with startups, I think Australia is kind of lagging in a way. I think we kind of have our hubs. I think Sydney and Melbourne, they're doing really good jobs. Um, we have, we know a, a startup owner and she's in Perth. She said there's no startup community over there. Right. So I think Australia is kind of a bit of a mix. I think US, obviously, you hear about Silicon Valley and they've got all this big kind of stuff over there. But with social enterprise in general, I would say it's definitely more... I don't know where the exact hub mm. would be. I don't know who is doing it best, but it is definitely the developed kind of countries. I think they're maybe it's because we have more money or whatever it is, or we have more exposure and we kind of seen these problems and want to tackle them. Um, maybe that's it. But I think there really isn't a lot going on in developing countries. Um, I think maybe it's just because they're doing things out of necessity rather than building a business from it. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not really sure, but I think that's where Aggie Global is kind of different in how we're trying to build this social business in the developing country and for people in developing countries and those that are living in poverty and things. So, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where the hub is, but I think it is kind of growing. Is it more of an online um, hub, if you will? Is that where you get your support mechanism from other businesses who are doing similar things? Or is it your expectation to go to a point and have a meeting point where you can network and discuss and collaborate that way? What, What would be your preference to learn from others? Mm. Uh, mostly online, really. Um, I find it really convenient and easy, and you can reach out to anyone, no matter their geographic location. Um, so one of the big things that stick out for Zoe and I is that we were given the Commonwealth Youth Awards last year, and that was just applying online. And from that, we got this big community in the Pacific, in the UK, in Africa, all trying to address the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. Um, So I think the easiest way to find those social entrepreneurs and people interested in the space is through online and just finding the right forums and social media pages or whatever it happens to be. And what would be your expectation from big business? What role do they have to play in supporting social social entrepreneurs and small business in this way? Is Is it through award schemes? Is it through money i mean what 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 in your in your mind do you think is there is there a way of supporting you um i think it kind of depends i think for any startup money is going to be kind of the hardest thing so any money is always great <laughs> um, especially free money but whether or not that is the best way i think if you're having these big companies that are supporting um smaller companies and those that are making that good positive impact I think that can go a long way because they will have their own network and it's just the recognition and the awareness about what that company is doing the small business so supporting you through say marketing ploys and saying you know this is this is an award system we've got in place but we're also going to support you through a bit of a PR campaign that always helps as well and I was thinking pilot programs as well especially for the technology businesses just having that first customer who's like I know this isn't going to be your biggest, best product, but I'm willing to give it a shot because I believe in your cause. And having that partnership from the get-go to support you Hmm. in the long run would go a long way too. Almost creating a bit of a financial base. And it's not a great deal for them, but it it would be a really good starting point. That's really interesting because it's always... It's always a discussion point how big business can support small and I think everybody's got a different idea about how that works. Yeah. So I'm interested to hear what your sort of social enterprise thoughts are on that. Um, 
let's talk about uh, who's in terms of who's leading the way. Is is it uh, I guess not for profit groups that you've learnt from as well as well as um, governments or big. Uh, mm. What I'm curious about is how do you find the information that you need to get into a market um, and also find out what other NGOs are doing. Not that you're an NGO, but but mm. in that way, how do you break through that? Um, for us, uh, for the Fiji side of things, literally just door knocking getting out of the office and the house and talking to your customers, the communities and all that kind of stuff. We've found that has been our most valuable learning experience. But then for the business side, because we didn't come from a business background, finding those accelerator programs or training programs that focus on the numbers or advertising and marketing and all that kind of stuff has really helped us. And we haven't really found a specific program that's for social enterprise. You kind of have to find the little pieces of information and the little activities that work for you and then mash it up into your own little collective. Well, perhaps that's your next uh, your next big project, <laughs> is setting up an entire education program basis for, uh, for, for social enterprise. We're going to take a quick break here on Small Biz Matters on Triple H 100.1 FM. And when we come back, I want to talk to the girls about, um, you know, what what's the next step and how to keep this social enterprise profitable into the future. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to the studio here at Triple H 100.1 FM. You're live with Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. And today we're talking all about social enterprise in Agritech. Aggie Tech is the company that we're talking to. We've got Zoe and Lisa here, um, some local entrepreneurs who are sharing us with us their journey about how to begin a social enterprise business, the difficulties you may face and the relationships and how to build them. So one of the aspects that um, you use quite heavily is your e-commerce platform. It's a way of, I guess, building relationships, but um, it's a given. Everybody has to have one or has to have some sort of um, e-relationship, electronic relationship with their customers and their stakeholders. So how have you used that to increase those relationships and and what is it, in a practical sense, what do you use the e-commerce platform to reach more clients as well? Yeah. So one of the bigger problems when we started going to Fiji and talking with the tourism industry is the chefs, they come in every three years and in those three, like after those three years, they leave. Um, But during those three years when they are there, they don't know what is available. So we really use the e-commerce platform to showcase what is locally available and the seasonality of that food. And it gives the chefs the ability to actually plan their menus so then they know what's coming up and they can buy when they can. Um, And it just means they get to plan things. It saves them time. It saves them money. Uh, and so, as an example, we've been with the, through the e-commerce platform. We have a farmer on board, and they come from Taviuni, which is a small Fijian island, uh, and they grow edible flowers. So it's just things. You, it's just like a garnish, something bright and colourful to kind of add to your dish and make it a bit more fun and memorable. And so we put these up on our e-commerce platform, and then the Hilton actually found us, and it was a chef from the Hilton and he was really intrigued by this and he really wanted to support local farmers as well so from that we've been getting weekly orders with the Hilton um, and they're super supportive of buying the local food and everything like that so the e-commerce platform really helped us kind of show what was locally available and help the Hilton and other hotels support the local farmers. And this is obviously not something that a local farmer would have access mm-hmm. to or have the ability to set up or maintain in any way. Um, and so that's one of those services that you provide, which is which is really great. Mm-hmm. And it's also awesome to see, um, you know, a huge multinational like Hilton 
doing something at a local level. Do they use that as part of their PR? Do they, in the hotels themselves, go, this is local, locally sourced produce and, and really make it a positive thing for the local business environment? Uh, they're all trying to change. So as we were saying before, uh, a lot of the international hotel chains are importing a lot of produce in Fiji. Um, so they don't have that local support. But because they are now so aware of it, they're like, okay, now we need to flip it and support local farmers. So I think they are starting to promote that within the hotel to their guests about where that food comes from. Um, but it's slow uptake as always. Because, you know, they've got their own processes and procedures that they're so used to following. Have they been quite open to that? And once you have somebody on board like the Hilton, do you find that opens the doors with more clients and builds more relationships, Zoe? Yeah, I think getting the Hilton and other big companies on board, it really kind of gives you that um, reliable income, which is always helpful for a small business. Um, So I think that is kind of an important thing for people that are starting up is to get that kind of big company on board where you can get that revenue and you can expand later. Uh, So yeah, being able to work with the big company from the get-go really helps because then you know you can expand to other bigger companies and also the smaller ones because you have a system in place that you know works. Mm, Yeah, and you can showcase that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was just going to add finding the right people um, because when we're approaching those hotels, we were like, okay, cool, we'll talk to the PR guy or we'll talk to the accounting team or whoever happens to be like the purchasing officer. But we found that the most effective person to go through was the chef because they were most passionate about where the food comes from. They want fresh food. They want it to be locally grown, all that kind of stuff. Um, So finding the right person really helps because then they will go out of that way to help you support them in a way, yeah. So you've established this quite successfully and you've, you've built a really good um, process in, in Fiji. Uh, do you see a, a, another market that you can move into in terms of another country that's fairly similar or do you fear that once you move into a different economy and a different market and a different government that you're going to have mm-hmm. more hurdles to move through or do you think that this you've, you've got a, you've established enough of a business reputation that you can move easily between countries lisa um i wouldn't say our reputation is that big yet in fiji <laughs> like we're getting there but not so much that other countries know about it but the pacific is really good like everyone works together like samoa and fiji we know it. we have contacts in those other countries now which is really convenient so i think when we do aim to scale internationally and globally that will help mm-hmm. and a lot of the cultures are similar um they're not exactly the same and there'll be a lot of nuances we need to learn when we go there but i think we're creating a system and process that will help us identify those different challenges and then address them as they come up yeah what do you think in general um say Austrade and the australian government can do better to support social enterprise are, are you recognized as commercially viable and supported as much as other businesses, do you think? Um, this is kind of an interesting question. We've, <laughs> we always have people approaching us and be like, oh, have you talked to um, Austrade or New Zealand Trade? And we're like, we have, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And I think the main reason for that is because we are this blend of um, social business. It's not, we're for profit, um, but we're making that social impact and but we're not a charity kind of thing. Yeah. It's so very, they, they're having trouble placing yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's very confusing for people because you don't fit a mould, so to say. And so with, with New Zealand Trade, the main thing I remember from them is they were like, yeah, we want to support you, but 
we don't have the funding because you're kind of this weird thing. Um, but if you find the farmers that want to like export or whatever to New Zealand, then we can support you that way. And that's how they would be making that impact. So and if you had to channel. sort of change your business model to fit in to be able to access mm. those services? Yeah, in a way. So it's kind of more we're telling these bodies what we are doing and saying, hey, th- we're doing this cool stuff. Um, if there's an opportunity that comes up that links and we don't have to change, that's great. But otherwise, we're just doing this cool stuff and we'll contact you if we have any leads. Um, it's kind of how we're playing it. It's kind of weird. Um, Isn't that a bit inflexible? Like A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's what we found. We could be wrong and we could just not be talking to the right people, like Lisa was saying, um, but that's just what we have found so far. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, I think that's really important that, that the government bodies get this messaging that that small business is constantly adapting and changing and moving and they need to be keeping up with that. So how can they learn about what social enterprise is doing? Do they need to get on the same platforms as you and understand what this, um, I guess microsystem of small business is is evolving into because it is mm. growing. I mean, yeah. millennials are totally interested in mainly doing this and not being necessarily entirely for profit. Mm-hmm. So how can we break down that barrier between old processes and what's really happening in the real world, in your opinion, Lisa? Mm. Uh, I think it's all about the conversation, really. Mm. Uh, there's a Facebook page called Sydney Social Entrepreneurs or something like that, and everyone keeps posting up these different opportunities out there. Um, and just having, helping the government get that awareness about what it's actually like on the ground starting up these businesses and the problems we're facing and what support we need. That's going to be the biggest thing. Yeah, because um, they can't have like a million meetings with a million businesses. No. They need to yeah. tap in and really learn what you guys are doing in the places where you operate and, and educate yourselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, yeah, having the conversation, maybe promoting more pages and forums to post up some of the challenges or ideas for support and things like that but it's all going to take time yeah (laughs) well I can tell you today has been a really interesting journey for myself to learn about how the next generation are uh, incorporating social enterprise even more heavily into the operating a small business I wanted to thank you so much for coming and sharing your journey I know that we've all learned a lot with um, just the way that you can engage with stakeholders on a social enterprise level now um, tell me Zoe how can people find out more about Aggie Global yeah, um, at the moment we just have our website, which is the e-commerce platform. So go check out aggieglobal.com. Otherwise, we have Instagram, we have Facebook as well. Uh, you can also contact Lisa and I via LinkedIn if you want to have that conversation. Uh, later in the year, we are hoping to start our investment round. It will probably be around March is when we're opening. So if you are interested in that, uh, definitely check us out and connect on LinkedIn would be great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us on Triple H 100.1 FM. If you've missed any of today's program, you can catch up via our website, smallbizmatters.com.au or via the iTunes page or anywhere we get podcasts. There are over 150 stories, expert, interesting stuff, uh, learning from people. You can talk about any subject. And if you'd like us to cover a topic that we haven't yet caught, haven't yet covered get in touch with us via our any page just the intraweb in general and we'll be in touch with you um thanks so much for joining me girls it's been great to chat to you about your journey you've been listening to triple h 100.1 fm we'll be back next week with another great guest on small biz matters with alexi boyd thank you